Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Endy the 100% Canadian-made mattress. Endy is offering listeners of this podcast a 100-night trial with free returns. They want you to be able to try a mattress in the comfort of your own home, and if you don't like it, you can send it back. Head to endy.ca and use the promo code CANADALAND for $50 off of any mattress. This episode is also brought to you by Sonos. Sonos is offering the listeners of CanadaLand 10% off of one order of $2,500 or less. Go to Sonos.com, use the promo code CANADA10, that's CANADA10, to receive this offer. It is available for a limited time only and cannot be combined with any other discounts or promotions. That's Sonos.com, CANADA10. Laura Howells. Jesse Brown. Freelance journalist. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Today, Laura, we are going to discuss Anthony Bourdain. He has discovered the sour, unpleasant aftertaste of the Canadian media. We are going to discuss all of the Canadian news stories that you can read in the American media. And we are going to discuss the Monk Debates, hardcore edition. Good to have you here. (laughs) Good to be here. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Robert Sadler, James Ladon, Louisa Fricker, Rochelle Miller, Eric Morgan, Nick, Fraser Robinson, 
and Jeremy Petter. I support Canada Land because I've been really disappointed with what our established news media companies have done to get news to me in a digital space. Uh, I really appreciate that Canada Land keeps trying new ways to deliver culture and commentary and that it holds those big players' feet to the fire. They deserve it, we deserve better, and I'm willing to pay for it. And Laura, as mentioned, Endy, the Canadian mattress company, is a sponsor of today's podcast. I don't know where you stand on, on mattresses. I don't know what that means. Even the words. <laughs> I like to question, stand on mattresses. Why not? If you want to stand on mattresses and feel patriotic at the same time, I would like to recommend to you a Canadian mattress. And that mattress is ND.ca. Look, there's a point here, people. And the point is that you do not need to spend more than you need to spend on a mattress. And you don't need to buy a mattress in a big, ridiculous, big box, brightly lit, weird store where you lie on your clothes on a mattress. And if you are hip to the mattress in a box concept, we're taking it one step further with ND because they are the cheapest mattresses in a box and the bestest mattresses in a box you're going to find. And they are cheap not because the materials are cheap, but because the materials are made in Canada, as is the mattress. They save money on exchange and customs and all sorts of things. It is under a thousand bucks for a king size mattress, and you get 50 bucks more off because you listen to this show. Gotta say, mattress shopping was one of the most awkward experiences of my life. And I talk to people all the time about how much I hated lying on those mattresses. So anything that can get me out of the mattress room, I'm there. Go to ND.ca. Use the promo code CanadaLand. You'll get 50 bucks off of a Canadian mattress. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. My name is Rudyard Griffiths. It's my privilege to have the opportunity to moderate tonight's debate and to act as your organizer. This is what I'm saying to you. Why the rage, bruh? You, you, you're doing well, but you're a mean, mad white man. I don't, I don't think there's anything pernicious about people banding together on the basis of their common identity to seek redress for discrimination and exclusion. You know, classic, if I can call it, huckstering snake oil um, pulpit talk, um, <laughs> which is... Um, to what degree is my present level of attainment or achievement a consequence of my white privilege. And I don't mean sort of. I mean, do you mean 5%? Do you mean 15%? Do you mean 25%? Do you mean 75%? And what do you propose I do about it? How about a tax? How about a tax that's like specialized for me so that I can account for my damn privilege you so that I can stop right hearing now. about it? So did you catch the monk debates? <laughs> Hottest ticket of the year. Yeah, I watched parts of it, yeah. Thoughts? Did you learn anything? I learned that. I feel like the resolution itself wasn't a great resolution. What is up with the framing of the whole thing, huh? What you call political correctness, I call progress. Like, I feel like that immediately from the start, you know, slants the odds in, in one side. Like, if you're going to use a term political correctness, like, that is already a loaded term that has negative connotations. And and then it was it was presented by Monk differently, like, at the debate itself, that was the resolution. Elsewhere, it was the question, is political correctness good? Which, again, it's like, what's the definition of political correctness? What are we even talking about? Yeah, and that's something that really they didn't get into all that much in the actual debate is what is political correctness? What are, like, How do we define that term? There's so much to be said about what transpired on that stage. And I don't want to kind of restage the debate itself to kind of limit ourselves to the media analysis of this thing. As debates go, this is a pretty like, it's showbiz. This is the circus. It's always been that way. It's always been about getting big names and hot button topics and trying to stage these things. But I think this is the first time that it was sort of tailor made for Internet warfare. And there's a great irony in that. 
because the subject of of this, you can call it political correctness, but that term has been around for some decades. Really, what they kept returning to was the idea of Twitter mobs and taking people's sentences out of context and, and the anxiety that you have uh, as a speaker or a thinker or a communicator that that's going to happen, that you're going to be set upon by, by the mob for, for something that you said. And that's sort of the one part where, you know, Stephen Fry, who was arguing alongside Jordan Peterson, like was for a moment very compelling to me was when he said uh, this very passionate salvo about how this is, we're just, we have to stop. This is madness. We're getting more and more divisive. We're getting more and more angry. We're not hearing each other. We're not leaving room to be wrong. We're not, we're, we're so certain of ourselves. And I, all of that felt so true to me. And yet, obviously, this is all attributed to this great evil that is political correctness. And again and again and again through the debate, the left, the left, the left is doing this. Mm. How ironic that within 24 hours of the debate hitting the internet, it became set upon by a mob, it became a series of memes, it became outrage bait, and I believe almost exclusively from the right. And and you can go onto YouTube now and you'll see remixes of the debate titled Jordan Peterson versus Insane Race Baiter Michael Dyson. Stephen Fry and Jordan Peterson, the catastrophic failure of the left. That one got 288,000 views already. It's more and more like, you know, Monster Truck Rally. Watch Stephen Fry's epic obliteration of hardline censoring political correctness. And this is my favorite. Monk debate edited down to Jordan Peterson and Stephen Fry parts. Because <laughs> <laughs> as, as Ishmael Darrow pointed out on Twitter, there's nothing that free speech loving people love more than debates where you edit out the other side <laughs> and only include the people who you agree with. That is free speech. Save you time at least. Wow. Um, <laughs> so it was an exercise in, in pimping. Like it was idea hustling. It was meme pimping. Mm -hmm. And... Monk was pimping Jordan Peterson. You know, all of the advanced uh, social media was like these loaded questions of like, is political correctness good? And there's a picture of Peterson on these sponsored posts and and then a quote from him like, can't have free thought without free speech. I guess you just answered your question. <laughs> the debate started. <laughs> the debate done. It is interesting that the, the Monk debate, like, and a lot of the conversation and media coverage around the Monk debate was Peterson-centric. Like, this felt like, in big ways, like, Peterson was the face of this debate. And uh, definitely it seemed like the Monk debate was sort of catching on the, the Peterson coattails to yeah. ride some of that. You know, and he actually has publicity. coattails now. He, I think he's <laughs> actually wearing three-piece suits with coattails. <laughs> Well, all the better to to latch onto it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. And well, yeah, and I and I feel like you you talk about the memification and sort of the, the baiting. And and there were definitely times during the bait when you know Peterson himself really milked that and played that up. The instance where um, Dyson calls him the mean white man, as we heard, and he keeps coming back to that. Peterson keeps you know being deeply offended by that and bringing that up as you know I cannot believe you'd say that. I cannot believe you said that. And you know you got to know that this is the sort of thing that gets clipped and gets. Played and you can you really use to your advantage and absolutely. But can I talk about that for a second? They kept returning to like and I think that in the framing of this, it was clear from the start we're going to deal with this at the most surface level of when we talk about political correctness. I think we all kind of know like you're talking about the words you can't say that the left is telling you you can't say certain words, yeah. right? And it always seems to me that the people who are anti-political correctness are asserting that political correctness exists much more so than the people on the other side for whom the language is merely, you know, there's a lot more that, that the left is concerned with than just what you call things, right? 
the ones who are so outraged that language is being dictated, uh, I think that's coming from the right. And I mean, this is an aside, but to hear Stephen Fry, like a scholar and a speaker and an actor, at one point in the debate say his problem with political correctness is that it doesn't work. You can't just deal with language. It doesn't work. Like if you're an academic and a scholar and, and you're arguing that language isn't important, you, something's gone wrong. Um, my point is that for all this insistence that it is the left's preoccupation on the technicalities of language, to compare those two, there were two epithets in that debate. And the one you pointed out is where, well, like there were two things that were considered epithets. When Dyson says, you're a mean, angry white man, that is like every word of that is true. Uh, Jordan Peterson is angry. Is he mean? I, maybe that's subjective. He, he, he seems pretty mean. He's certainly a white man. That is just purely descriptive. Now, maybe bringing up the fact that he's white, we can talk about why that was, and, and Peterson thinks that's racist, and Dyson, I think, has a very different perspective. But that's, that's what Dyson said, and that's what's being seized upon as evidence of uh, race baiting from Dyson. Here's what Stephen Fry said. We heard him say it, and it was really pernicious and disingenuous, and I really like Stephen Fry. I was surprised to hear this. He says, oh, this has been a great debate. I really enjoy the huckstering snake oil pulpit talk. It's really refreshing in that British way that he completely dismisses and denigrates Dyson, who is a preacher and from a tradition of the black church. Like Not just that he's from the pulpit, but he's a huckster he's, and it's, he's selling snake oil. And if anyone's watched, like, Dyson is brilliant and funny and discursive and bringing in the poetic and, uh, you know, modern and learned and like, I mean, oh, yeah. he doesn't let him get away with it. He immediately talks, and I think in a classy way, uh, that he's very well acquainted with being dismissed and with when black intellectuals speak up, this is what is always used to discredit and dismiss them. But the actual, whether Fry recognizes it or not, the actual point and the power game that Fry was playing there was racist. And I don't know that, that the same could be said for what Dyson said. Yeah. I mean, I think it's disingenuous to dismiss language as unimportant or you know, not something to engage with critically and then turn around and use language, whether consciously or not, like as to weaponize it and to denigrate and, and you know, use loaded language that is it is unavoidable to say that language has meaning and that language influences thought and that language you know, can cast people and ideas in certain ways. And that, of course, we need to talk about language because you're using it for a specific purpose. It has an effect. And yeah, I, I do feel like that wasn't really engaged with enough. The whole idea of language as a tool and taking language seriously wasn't really engaged with as much as it should have been in that debate, especially if it's a debate around political correctness, which, as you mentioned, only really comes up as a term when people are talking about language and the control of language. Yeah, but I think you nailed it. It's not a debate about political correctness. It was the Jordan Peterson show. And it was all everything was sort of with reference to the man with the golden tie and bringing up points from that kind of delicious New York Times profile. Yeah, of him and, yeah. And, you know, referencing things like everybody was oriented, even Stephen Fry, like, yeah, I know it's surprising to see me here with Jordan Peterson, like everything mm -hmm. was oriented around uh, boosting this guy. And, uh, you know, I guess that's Monk's bread and butter. Maybe it gives us some clarity for anyone who was under the, you know, any kind of idea that this was like an actual serious intellectual enterprise. This is showbiz. This is idea showbiz. And, um, you know, it's it's sort of hit its peak TED Talk moment now with the way that this one has been processed. Um, it's worth noting how the audience voted on this debate. Like I thought that was really interesting that at the beginning, the majority, like 64% sided with Peterson and Fry. And at the end, it tipped in their favor. And I think it's 70% voted with Peterson and Fry. Like Peterson and Fry won that debate in that monk debate audience room. 
which, yeah, maybe the Monk debates are riding on the Peterson coattails, but maybe that also speaks to sort of how much Peterson is speaking to that audience. Well, I think a lot of them showed up for that reason. And you could tell by where they were clapping and who they were booing, where their allegiance. I mean, you know, as you say, they were already on side. It it didn't tip. It just inched further in their favor by a few points. Yeah, yeah, It sort of ended where it started, you know, and Michelle Goldberg has a posse. You know, Stephen Fry's got a posse, but uh, Peterson's got a posse, then they buy tickets. So I, 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 you know, look, they set the whole thing up around this guy, as mentioned, and I think they were playing to his crowd. What do you think of the New York Times profile? Oh, it was just a delight. I mean, you know, again, that, that one was playing to its crowd, and I'm, I suppose I'm part of that crowd. But I really, really like that style of profile writing where you just let them hang themselves. It's <laughs> just <Yeah. laughs> something, I mean, where you just, you know, it was very keenly observed and it was not a descriptive sentence of criticism was necessary for that piece to read as it did. Yeah, no, I thought it was it was, it was great and, and, and very scathing. And uh, of course, there's a lot of discussion around Peterson's comments around enforced monogamy. And I mean, on a much lesser scale, I also thought it was really interesting, these, these moments that pointed out Peterson's hypocrisy or contradictions, like the fact that you know, he's constantly espousing to pick yourself up and clean up your room, but his own office is honestly a mess. Or the fact that, you know, like, oh, here's this guy who dismisses the concept of white privilege as just being a farce or not real. And then he's using allegories about witches and uh, dragons to argue his points and saying, yeah, they're totally real. And What allegory? The witches are real. You didn't, you didn't hear it? Why oh, sorry. They live in swamps. I thought they lived in castles. Laura, we're going to hear clips from two different interviews with a Canadian who has gone by the name Abu Huzaifa al-Kanadi, Abu Huzaifa the Canadian. The first interview you're going to hear was broadcast by the CBC in September 2017, and the second clip is from the New York Times podcast, Caliphate. We enforce uh, on cigarettes and alcohol and drugs. We enforce on mixing of women and men. He claims he never harmed anyone, but did witness ISIS brutalizing Muslims regularly, lashings and worse. The second time I did the kill, I killed someone. (sighs) This guy was a drug dealer. I had to stab him in the heart. Why did you have to do that? That's his punishment. Okay, so what you just heard was the same guy in his CBC interview saying that when he was with ISIS, he witnessed horrible atrocities but never killed anyone. And then he's telling Rukmini Kalamaki of the New York Times that he, in fact, stabbed a drug dealer in the heart. He executed, brutally executed this drug dealer when he was with ISIS, and he actually confessed to another killing as well, where he says he executed another ISIS prisoner by shooting him in the back of the head. I will confess, I was I missed this story the first time the CBC had it and have become much more familiar with the story of Abu Huzaifa through this wonderfully produced New York Times podcast, Caliphate. Now, Canada is catching up to the story, and a few questions emerge, one being, Who's he lying to, the CBC or to the New York Times? Did he kill or did he not? And Rukmini says, well, I had amazing timing. I spoke to him within a few weeks of his return to Canada after being with ISIS, and and he repented and renounced ISIS. And he thought he'd gotten away with everything, and no Canadian law enforcement had interviewed him at the time. So she's sort of suggesting that she got the real story. And apparently within 12 hours of her interviewing him, the RCMP came knocking. And it would be very hard for them to determine that he killed anybody when he was overseas with, with ISIS. So it makes sense that he would deny it now. And, and he says that they've, they've hooked him up to a lie detector test. He was on drugs when he spoke to the New York Times. 
So now there's this whole question of whether or not we have an ISIS murderer who has repatriated to Canada without consequence. And it's gone political and it's come up, of course, as, a, as an accusation against the Trudeau government. Uh, how have they let this slip through the cracks? And there are other journalistic questions that are hovering around this. It was speculated by a few people of some prominence on Twitter that the way that CBC was revisiting the story and saying, well, we granted him anonymity, but he lied to us, maybe, or he lied to the New York Times, we don't know. And a lot of people felt that they were building a case for actually revealing his true identity, which they have not done at this point. And that's, that is speculation, I should note. So I'm bringing this up because it's really interesting. And the kind of Americanization and globalization of the Canadian news cycle is something that I find really interesting. Like Selena Ross wrote this piece, totally unrelated, that, you know, Selena Ross, formerly of the Globe and Mail, a piece that really we should have had in the Canadian media about how all of these refugee claimants from Haiti who showed up in Canada and all sorts of things were written about refugee claimants over the last year or so, that they're all getting employed, that the, the employment rate is incredibly high and that there's a, unlike in the States where they're not allowed to work, it's sort of, I guess it's a good news story, depending on how you look at things, of the way that we're handling this uh, influx of refugees and, and how in, in Quebec, at least, there's uh, there's some reason to be hopeful. So I'm, I guess I'm, I want to note this trend of all these Canadian stories, in the case of this Lena Ross piece by Canadian journalists, but through the American press. And also kind of wonder why it took the New York Times podcast, you know, you, you can't say the Times had it first, CBC had it first, but, you know, there's just something, the stories play out differently depending on who tells them. I don't know if this is necessarily, we're talking about a couple of stories and I'm not necessarily sure this is a symptom of a larger problem. And I mean, you've talked about on this podcast before, like the idea that Canada is a, it's a hot market right now. It's full of hot stories. And, you know, Canadians are reading these news outlets. Canadians are reading the New York Times and the Washington Post. And it makes sense for these outlets to want to come in and get stories that Canadian media aren't covering. And I mean, pointing to a few examples of, you know, these are stories that Canadian media should have had, but America got to first, I don't know, is entirely fair. Like there are way too many stories in Canada for anyone to cover, let alone, you know, just certain media outlets. I mean, in the case of Selena, the Selena Roth story in the Washington Post, I asked her last night, like, hey, why did you pitch this to the Washington Post uh, as opposed to a Canadian outlet? And um, what she said made a lot of sense. Like, it's nothing against Canadian media. It's just that as a freelancer, it's a smarter move or it makes more economic sense. You know, the journalism industry in Canada is contracting. There are fewer publications accepting freelance pitches. The budgets for these publications are smaller. In the States, there are more places to pitch. The freelance budgets are bigger. And like, as I said, it's not like... Canadians aren't reading these American outlets. Mm -hmm. It's not like you're just writing for an American audience. So if you're a freelancer, if you want to have stability and you want to, you know, be getting published and, and you know, making sure that you you have outlets and have these relationships, it, it makes sense to publish in American outlets when you can, is, is what she was kind of saying. In the case of the Washington Post, too, I think it's interesting that she was saying for their reporting, they rely entirely on freelancers. It's not like the New York Times when they have a staff of reporters in Canada, mm -hmm. like Canada-specific reporters. And she said they actually have really high quality control for their reporters. You have to go through a whole application process if you want to freelance with them. You have to do an interview and submit an application. So once you're in their network and you, you've done that work, you know, it makes sense if you have a story that can work for the Post to pitch to the Post. So, yeah, I mean, I see what you're saying, but I just don't know if this is... I don't know if we're making this into more than it needs to be. If you see what I'm saying, you're doing better than me. I'm not even sure what I'm saying. Like, I'm certainly not saying, oh, the American media is getting the stories that the Canadian media should have had. Because in the case of the caliphate story, CBC did have it first. Mm -hmm. So what are we actually seeing here? You know, I, I think you're absolutely right that 
to the extent that there still is a viable news industry in the States, that like it's a business and they see a market opportunity. Oh, Canada is being underserved. There are not as many reporters covering Canada as there ever were. And arguably there were never enough. So there's some great stories and the world is more interested in Canada than it's ever been. And the world is smaller and more connected than it's ever been. So let's find, why wouldn't we tell great stories that come from Canada? And in fact, there are some great unemployed or, you know, employment seeking Canadian journalists who are happy to work for us because our dollar pays well. And it's nice to have these American mastheads on your, you know, a byline with the Washington Post is pretty good. Uh, lots of reasons. Like, yeah, there's no blame for the for the freelancer or for the American news outlet. I guess I'm just sort of recognizing a process by which our media seems less and less relevant, even when they do have the story. In the case of the CBC, they had this story. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's the New York Times masthead on it or if the fact that they have the storytelling ability to, you know, using the Daily's RSS feed to launch the caliphate to, you know, I think like a million listeners to get that many people paying attention the way they tell the story, the production values. And, you know, it's a very modern piece of journalism, Caliphate. The CBC story, I think, slipped through the cracks. It certainly didn't become a, a political hot item the way it has now, now the New York Times is on it. And I'm wondering if this trend continues Canadians are more than happy. Like, I kind of feel like a lot of Canadians prefer getting their Canadian news from American news sources and some, just the, as we've been trained to prefer American versions of everything. I kind of wonder where this is going to take us. You know, maybe it's not a bad thing. Maybe that's just the way it's going. Like, Canadians will work for American media. I mean, that's sort of the silver lining from the freelancer's point of view. It was a pretty closed door when I started freelancing, you know, I don't know, 18, 19 years ago. You had to kind of go on these little pilgrimages to New York and try to get through the door and meet with an editor and establish a relationship. But now it's pretty informal. You can send pitches and watch. Washington Post's vetting process notwithstanding, it's easier to pitch to American outlets than it ever has been, which is the one good thing for young people who are entering the industry. So, yeah, I'm not sure, you know, what the upshot is when it's all said and done, but I see, you know, whether it's a confirmation bias or not, I, I see, like, examples of this happening uh, on a more and more frequent basis. And I mean, I, I think to the extent that degradates the Canadian media or leads to a decline in Canadian staffers or Canadian journalism jobs. Like, yeah, of course, that's something to be concerned about. But I mean, I feel like that's that's happening regardless of whether it, the yeah. states are publishing about Canada or not. Yeah, it's like more of a relevance thing of just like, you know, if they keep eating our sandwiches at a certain point, you just kind of like, I'll just go there for my information. Yeah. I mean, it's still like this is still Canadian journalism if it's being produced by Canadians. It's just on an American platform. I don't know. It feels weird saying that, too. Where's my where's my loyalty? <laughs> This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. 
They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Laura, our second sponsor is Sonos. Do you have a smart speaker? Do you have a speaker you can talk to? I I, I don't. I don't. Does, Does a dog count? A dog does not count. Can a dog dim the lights in any room of your house? Can a dog play you any song that has ever been recorded? Does a dog know your birthday? You clearly haven't trained your dog well enough. I don't even have a dog, but I have two Sonos One speakers, and uh, that's how I get companionship in this miserable, sad life. These speakers are pretty cool. They sound fantastic, and they're changing the podcast industry because, like, this is the weirdest thing. The biggest obstacle between podcasts and listeners are, like, olds who don't know how to download podcasts. So I, like, actually I'm getting my parents these speakers like and say like just say to it play Canada land and then maybe they will care about the things that I do in my life. I don't know. That's the gambit. This is the saddest ad anyone has ever heard. More is being revealed than was intended. Get your Sonos One speaker at sonos.com and use the promo code Canada10 Canada10 to receive 10% off of up to $2,500. You can buy your whole family who ignore you Sonos speakers so they can listen to your podcast, Laura. This is something <laughs> that you or anyone or I could potentially do. 10% off, up to $2,500 at Sonos.com, promo code Canada10. I love you, Mom, but I hope you downloaded this. <laughs> Familiar as you are, Laura, with the program Canada Land Shortcuts, you must know that we note duly that which must be duly noted. Noted. Would you like to begin? Yeah, sure. I I mean, I'm not sure how off the beaten track this duly noted is, but I think it's, due to the nature of this podcast, worthy of duly noting extra hard is maybe at the same time that we're recording this, Vice Reporter Ben Maku is before the Supreme Court arguing that he should not have to give up his communications with the source to the cops. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has been a you've talked about it on the show, which is why I was sort of hesitant to duly note it. But, uh, you know, this has been something that Vice has been battling for years, ever since the RCMP issued a production order ordering uh, Ben to give up all his communications with uh, an alleged ISIS fighter that he was talking to for a story. And, you know, we've talked about it a lot, but this is really the pivotal moment. You know, what the Supreme Court decides, and I'm not sure when they're going to come out with their decision, but what the court decides could potentially have lasting consequences for Canadian journalism, civil liberties, the the power of the cops and law enforcement and, and government. And I just think that it's something we we really need to be paying super close attention to, and we can't talk about enough because it is super important. Absolutely. Duly noted. I would like to note, uh, you know, I, I hate news cliches, and I hate redundant, tired headlines and stories that you've seen again and again and again. So I just want to bring people's attention to, like, if I read another story like this, here's the headline. The racist podcaster who started a neo-Nazi coffee company to fund white nationalism. (laughs) Again. I know. They won't stop. Um, This is a great and weird story by Marty Patrickin. Mac Lamoureux, Alheli Picasso, and Evan Balgord, super team, uh, reporting on, yeah, Thunder Bay. Of course, Thunder, uh, Thunder Bay had a Nazi barista who was running like a hipster coffee shop and was also perhaps Canada's most prominent Nazi podcaster. And he started a mail-order coffee bean company to fund the white nationalist, white supremacist movement. This is a wild story and amazing reporting by the team at Vice. Agreed. Yeah. 
Just go to Vice and just you just I think if you Google Nazi barista, it'll take you right there. So uh, all I'll say is that uh, you should read the story. Duly noted. Laura, here is some media criticism for you. Some words that have been used recently to describe the Canadian press. Cretinous. Lazy. Click-hungry bullshit. Insipid. Misleading headline completely unsupported by text of article. I am coming to truly hate Canada's news outlets. Did this come from your Twitter feed? Doesn't it sound like something I would say? Yeah. No, <laughs> it was not from my Twitter feed. It was from Anthony Bourdain's Twitter feed. And it's weird. It's weird reading Anthony Bourdain discovering the Canadian news media and its problems. I mean, I feel like at the heart of this, it's Anthony Bourdain and the folks behind the Parts Unknown Twitter account discovering that you should just never, ever, ever say newfie because it will only lead to problems. And you just throwing a fit at the Canadian media and you know, hating the two national newspapers. Maybe you could tell our listeners who have not been following this crucial saga, how did this start and how did, yeah, bring us back to, can I even say it? Start with newfie. Oh, I don't think you can say oh, that. Oh, God. All right. Okay, so I will preface this by saying that I am a Newfoundlander. I'm from Newfoundland. So uh, if I say Newfie, I, I apologize in advance, but I, I do have more license than you. Um, but <laughs> um, so this all started when Anthony Bourdain filmed an episode of his show, Parts Unknown, in Newfoundland. The episode itself, I've watched it, paints Newfoundland in a really flattering light. It's, you know, showcases lovely scenery, great food. But in the lead up to the show, the Parts Unknown Twitter account made a tweet that linked to an article and said something like, embrace the newfies as they are. And so I saw this tweet and you immediately know how this is all going to play out. Yeah. Like being in Newfoundland, you've seen the story play out a thousand times. If you're not from Newfoundland, if you haven't grown up on the island, saying newfie is just going to, it's going to cause a world of pain because it's, it really is a term that's considered derogatory and a lot of Newfoundlanders consider it a slur. Whether you're the Canadian government tweeting about Pokemon called newfie or Walmart putting newfie on a t-shirt, it's never going to end well for you. So this tweet went out. Some people on Twitter got upset. Seamus O'Regan, the MP, weighed in saying, you know, we don't like this term. Eventually, the tweet got deleted. Parts Unknown apologized, made it clear that this didn't come from Anthony Bourdain. He has nothing to do with the actual Twitter account. And you might think that would be where this should end. You might. But, you know, news stories get written about this tweet and the fact that it got taken down. And, and I will say that a lot of people on Twitter were also saying, you know, we don't really mind. And it's, it is really hard to gauge general population reaction based on Twitter. So this tweet was taken down. An apology was issued. Uh, stories were written. That was controversy number one. Controversy number two is uh, some people on Twitter, you know, see the episode and question, hey, why is Anthony Bourdain going around Newfoundland with these two Quebecois chefs? Shouldn't you be showcasing more local chefs and more local food? Which, to be fair, he does go around with two Newfoundland chefs um, <laughs> as why well. Why don't you do that thing that you actually did? <laughs> I mean, I have my own criticisms of the episode. I, I, anyways, so then Anthony Bourdain shoots back and, and makes a tweet, you know, the reason I brought those Frenchies along or something to that effect oh, is boy. because they were fierce advocates for Newfoundland. I'm not directly quoting. So then, you know, more articles get written. Um, and <laughs> uh, the first time I see Anthony Bourdain getting upset over the story is uh, a National Post story. It's actually a CP story, but with a National Post headline mm -hmm. that says, after using Newfie to promote his show, Chef Anthony Bourdain fuels new kerfuffle with Frenchie's comment. And so that's when Anthony Bourdain makes this quote tweet and, you know, gets upset. Yet more lazy, click-hungry bullshit with misleading header completely unsupported by text of article. Truly discouraging. 
Which, to be fair, people weren't, I didn't really see anyone get upset over the Frenchie comment. Did you? Well, the headline suggests that there is a new kerfuffle. There is a new kerfuffle. (laughs) There's a new kerfuffle. He didn't learn his lesson by saying Newfie, which he didn't actually say. Somebody with his Twitter account of his show said it. But but now, new kerfuffle, everybody. New kerfuffle. Anyways, uh, that's kerfuffle number one. Next time he gets mad at the Globe and Mail, John Doyle, the TV critic for the Globe, writes a column. He says, Anthony Bourdain is fed up with Canada, as well he might be. And the column isn't so much about Anthony Bourdain as it is casting dispersions on Newfoundlanders for getting upset over the term Newfie and, you know, basically saying, why don't Newfoundlanders have a sense of humor anymore? Why don't they have a sense of proportion? Which I don't think is really fair. But then Anthony Bourdain reads this headline and that's when he makes his comment uh, about another cretinous something or other. So, yeah, Anthony Bourdain is mad at Canadian news media. He's He is fed up with those news outlets. I think it's important at this point for us to establish that this is ridiculous. Um, <laughs> this is about absolutely nothing. And yet, and yet, I believe that it truly reveals something about Canada in so many ways. I think we need to remember here that Anthony Bourdain has legitimately been celebrating Canada's food scene for a very long time, before it was cool to do so. I mean, back with Pierre de Cochon and and, and Picard in in Montreal, and then through to him championing the Joe Beef guys and Jen Ag and the Hoof here in Toronto, like he has been, he's traveled through the country. He has introduced what we're doing to an international audience. So I can understand his displeasure at seeing headlines that read, Anthony Bourdain is fed up with Canada. You know, it's sort of like yeah. no good deed going unpunished. It's like whoever said I'm I'm fed up with like what is that based on? I could see strangely, I can see this from Anthony Bourdain's perspective. I, I'm not comfortable with the compatibility that's being suggested here, or maybe is emerging here between me and Anthony Bourdain. Uh, sometimes I'm fed up with Anthony Bourdain, but in this instance, I, I, I could see him just being like, "What is with you people? Like, I came there and did these shows one after the next. You know, like I think he, when he says, "Why did I bring these French chefs?" to Newfoundland because they're the ones who told me about Newfoundland. That makes sense to me. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I think that the tenor of the the emphasis, the emphatic way I'm speaking, would suggest that there actually is a conflict here that does not exist because I think most people in Newfoundland were very glad for the attention and for the show. You had some reservations about it? No, I, I mean, the response I saw to the actual show was primarily positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Parts Unknown learned its lesson and saying Newfie is just never a good idea. And, and I think it's perfectly legitimate that some people are upset about that and as well they should be if, you know, it's the term has a lot of baggage. It's, you know, Newfoundland is used to being the butt of a lot of Canadian jokes. And the term Newfie just encompasses all these stereotypes about Newfoundlanders being lazy and unintelligent and uneducated. And I mean, that's a discussion that people in Newfoundland can have amongst themselves. But again, I think Anthony Bourdain, if he wants to be upset about these headlines and this all this media attention that kind of drags him into it against his will, fair enough. I thought the episode was was very kind to Newfoundland. I, I think it's totally it's totally legit for Newfoundlanders to just say like I, we don't want to hear this epithet anymore. I think mean, that's totally because it's never it's never nice. Sometimes it's sort of a cutesy mean. Sometimes it's actually mean mean. But it's never nice. So people I think should be able to say like I don't like to be called that. And I think that they said that to his show and he said okay I hear you. The part of this I'm gonna try to articulate why there's something more here than just the absolutely surface level nonsense. <laughs> there's something so Canadian to me about this mixture of like. <gasps> He's paying attention to us. Oh, he insulted us. Like trying to start something between him. You know, I think a lot of people were like, he apologized. It's fine. Yeah. And then like, oh, kerfuffle over the word Frenchie. I didn't hear a lot of Quebecois people getting too upset about that. Like the media is just trying to get something going. And then at this Tempest in a Teapot that we created, 
you've got John Doyle saying like, well, he's fed up with us as well he should be. And so that mixture of being super thin skinned, super like, craving the attention, super thin skinned, and then like super self-loathing. And you could just see like Bourdain just like turning away in disgust. And then my favorite trope of Simon Haupt and John Doyle, both of the Globe and Mail, playing this kind of game of like, what, what are you so upset about? The, the column was actually fairly pro-Anthony Bourdain. He's like, <laughs> the headline says I'm fed up with Canada. <laughs> Which I've been promoting relentlessly for years. Like, what headline? I don't know what you're talking about. We don't write those headlines. Yeah, somebody else wrote the headline. It's like, (laughs) I mean, I think this also speaks to the fact that, like, the controversy started on Twitter, the controversy ended on Twitter, and using Twitter as any kind of gauge of reaction and public response and just controversy in general is always going to be kind of skewed and hard to gauge, and everything is going to be heightened and amplified, and you're only going to hear certain voices and. I think this is also a Twitter story as much as it is a Canadian story. This is why we can't have nice tweets. Laura, thank you so much. Thank you. This was fun. That's your Canada Land Shortcuts. You can email me about it at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read what you send me. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Where can people find you? You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at Laura Howells NL. Our website is canadalandshow.com. We have original stories going up there all the time. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. This episode was produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, please support us on Patreon. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.